On the show today, I'm joined by best-selling author Maria Lewis. She's got a brand new book out called The Witch Who Courted Death. I read it. I loved it. It's amazing. We chat all about that book and a whole lot more. It's going to be a great show. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to the brand new episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and I am so excited to have you with us today. We've got a fantastic interview with a, a friend of mine, Maria Lewis, who has written a number of great books like uh, Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid Too, and It Came From The Deep, and also her latest book, The Witch Who Courted Death, which came out, uh, I think it was Halloween, so very, very recently, and uh, we recorded this interview after Maria's appearance at uh, Supernova here in Adelaide. And we had a nice chat about the book, about writing, about representation in literature. Now, I am going to put a, a language warning on this one for our uh, younger listeners. Uh, there, there may be a few, few swear words, so uh, be cautious of that. But otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Maria. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited that we're doing this in Adelaide, your hometown. We are. It's, it's been a very long weekend. <laughs> it has. Has it not? It we, has. We, we've done a supernova. Yes. Let's get that contractual it obligation It was most plug. super and most nova. It was. Was it a good weekend for you? It was. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing the Adelaide show because... Adelaide and Perth, actually, are two shows that I really enjoyed doing mm -hmm. because, um, first of all, people are always so grateful if you come to Adelaide or Perth for anything. They're like, thank you so much for coming to our city. And you're like, oh, my honour. Like, it's, it's awesome. But this is the first stop on what is the Australian tour for The Witcher Quarter Death. And I, I literally flew back from the US for this supernova weekend. And I don't know, I was just, I was in transit when the book came out. And so I haven't really had much opportunity to like be out there and like talk to people about it and like sign books for people. And starting that off with Adelaide was really nice because they're, a, it's a really big reading city. Like I know. We've got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Serial killers and churches are like the default what people go to, but Adelaide has a massive book community and a really loyal book community as well. There's this group, um, there's a lot of like young adult book groups that are run out of Dimmick's Adelaide and like a lot of really fantastic bookshops in this city. And so it's it's really nice to be able to start somewhere where mm. it's like book obsessives and like book lovers and also a place that's not quite as manic as well. Like yeah. it's a nice, it's easing us into the rest of the tour. And it's going gonna, gonna to be a big tour for you. I mean, yes. obviously Brisbane Supernova will be mm -hmm. huge because that rivals Sydney in size. <laughs> I know. And also Brisbane's kind of like – Brisbane and Gold Coast are funny because they're like my home ones. Like mm. I've only been living in Sydney for eight years, which is like a significant amount of time. But um, I did high, I went to high school and went to university and started working in a newspaper all on the Gold Coast in Brisbane. So that's where a lot of my people are. And so if I ever do a show or any event, in Gold Coast in Brisbane that's when you get a lot of people that come out that know you or you went to school with or uni with and stuff like that so it's um it's a different kind of experience the home show vibe as you know this being yeah. your city and you're just doing a home show so home shows are a little weird home shows for the win <laughs> <laughs> now you have a new book I do the book, the book is out yes it's I, out in the world oh my god so exciting how does it feel to spend a, you know a long yeah. time writing something yes. crafting something yes. and then to actually have other people then sort of take it and make it their own. There is fan art mm. and, and all that kind of thing that, that social media now provides for yes. fans. Well, I, it's taken me a little bit of time to sort of get acclimatized to this idea and this fact, but um, 
it's I have a journalism background. I've been mm. a journalist for almost 14 years now and I started off as a police reporter and then transitioned into writing more about pop culture commentary and doing like documentary features and stuff like that. But journalism is a very different beast because the reactions you get sometimes are quite immediate to your pieces and that kind of thing. And with books, what's but it's always yours. You write the story and it's like the sources that you've contacted and the narrative that you have weaved together. And it's usually dictated by what the story is about that, you know, sort of decides which way it's going to turn. But with books, once it's out there in the world, you kind of let it go. It's not really yours anymore mm. in a weird way. Like it's always yours, but the characters are people's. People take the characters and they take the themes and the tone and they make it their own. And with my first book, Who's Afraid, which came out in 2016, I didn't know to expect that and wasn't expecting to expect that. And I had um, a bunch of cosplayers come up at Melbourne Supernova, which at that point in the book had been out for about three or four months. And that was such an insane experience. And then people start doing fan art and sending fan art. And I got some beautiful fan art this weekend from Sam Chen, who did a really great job of the main werewolf from those books, Tommy Grayson. Um, and people made me uh, like witch who courted death, uh, like book charms and stuff. And there's a little black cat that you can see at the back here that somebody made me as uh, especially to be like Salem, a familiar from Sabrina, but also, um, you know, linking up the witch stuff. So it's a weird thing because you write these stories and you spend so long with these characters in these worlds and you wonder if anyone's going to give a shit and whether they're going to give a damn and then they do and they're your babies and they kind of go out into the world and they become people's, they become something else for people. And so that's something that took me a little bit of time to understand but as a fan and someone who's obsessed with characters, I also totally got it because like Buffy and Faith and characters like that and She-Hulk, you know, those are people, and Dana Scully, Cena, like mm. I could literally just, you know, drop a bunch of names of people I'm obsessed with from pop culture have been incredibly important to me. Huntress, Black Canary. But um, those people feel like friends to me yeah. and they're intimate to me in a way that, certain characters are forever regardless of whether you grow up or stop reading that source material and it's it's been very interesting to be on the other side of that and create characters that people connect with and speaking of characters that people connect with you have you've written diverse characters and Mm. this is it feels odd to be talking about this like a novelty in 2018 (laughs) but to see the word bisexual in a book for example Mm. is is not something common yes and i had that moment of oh it's lovely representation <laughs> and then i'm like why, why is this still y- unique is is diversity and representation mm-hmm. something you consciously think about when writing books well i've never re- i write genre first of all which is considered a mainstream uh, like genre can be an all-compassing term but basically what that means is fantastical shit so whether that's dragons or witches or ghosts or vampires or whatever that's mm. like genre is is that um science fiction fantasy young adult urban fantasy all that paranormal romance yep. that kind of gets put under that umbrella and i've never really understood why you could have dragons in a story and not have queer people or not have people of color you know or not have people that have different abilities mm. i never really understood that why you could have those fantastical things but not those other grounding elements and i just always wanted to write types of stories that reflected the world that I see out there every day. I wanted to write types of stories where I got to see my friends represented in them. I got to see myself represented in them. Um, There's that whole line, like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that's not 
like I'm not saying someone's reading my book and being like, you're right, I can be, you know, a biracial Polynesian werewolf. Now I'm in, you know, or like, you're right, you know what, I am a merman trapped Mm. in a landlocked canal on the Gold Coast or whatever. But that element of the main characters, especially main characters, but also the supporting characters, characters that are pivotal to Mm. the story, pivotal to other characters and their relationships, making sure that that reflects the world as we see it. And that doesn't necessarily mean like having both male and female characters. It means having queer people. It means having people of colour. It means having people with limb differences. It means people who are identified differently in terms of Mm. gender, gender fluid, trans, the whole bag and making those people included in those stories because it's not an abnormal thing Mm. at all. And, like, readers, especially genre readers, I think, are really hungry for that kind of stuff because they haven't seen it for a really long time. I think that's changing now, but, you know, when I was first shopping around Who's Afraid, I had a lot of trouble with people who had issues with a biracial main character and her being in her 20s and, you know, being sexually active and all this kind of stuff and um, them wanting her to be 16 and white and in a love triangle. And that's literally what I got a rejection letter from from one publisher in Australia that said all that in written form. And I was like, oh, you fucking idiot. But whatever. All I can do is try and get this book published with somebody else, make sure that it's successful. And then that's my way of showing you that you were wrong. And we're starting to see that change and stuff like, you know, to all the boys I've loved before, the Hagee Give, a lot of the diversity that's being represented in the young adult community at the moment. Daniel Jose Older has the Shadow Shaper series. Like I could name a thousand different books and that's starting to sprinkle out and infiltrate other areas as well, which is really important. It certainly is. And what I loved when I was reading your book is that it didn't, it wasn't representation for representation's sake. It was completely normalised. Yeah. It wasn't the fact you were going, oh, here's I'm glad it. you thought that because that's, that's what I tried to set out to do. You never yeah. know whether you're going to be successful in that. Yeah, and, and it is that thing of they're in they're Hollywood, for example, mm. is starting to be like, oh, here's one character yeah. who is queer. Here is one character of <laughs> Or color. it's six guys and one girl and the woman's personality is girl. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's like, the personality yeah. type, right? Like yeah. the Italian job. Did you ever see the Italian job remake did, with yeah. Mark Wahlberg? And it's like Charlie's Theron's personality was that she's hot and drives a Mini Cooper. Sorry, she can crack safes as well. I mean, like, fuck it. Yeah, right. but that's... Yeah. But, like, Seth Green yeah. had this backstory about how he, he was with the original Napster and it's like, come on, guys, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I totally no. went off a tangent there. This is my life. <laughs> this is what I enjoy. But, um... I mean, something that I know was talked about across the weekend Mm. at Supernova was strong female characters in literature. Yes. Which I know is something that's obviously hugely important to you. And I've never got to host you on those panels, but (laughs) one day. Yeah, one day. Yeah, we don't have time. Um, Let's let's talk about strong female characters in your books because there are so many of them Mm. and and it is wonderful. And again, it is not something that's often around. Genre has for a very long time, I think, been targeted at male readers and I know that's changing yes fantastic that's changing but I also want to talk about the fact that strong female characters are not just like it's not just women reading those characters I can read those characters and Uh go this is an amazing character yeah it's one of the things that's pretty interesting at Supernova because I get a lot of comments from um like different people being Mm. surprised about how many male readers I have for my books so who's afraid who's afraid two are my first two books it came from the deep is my third and the witch who caught a death is my fourth Mm. and they're all set within the same universe uh like think marvel cinematic universe if you will but it's like a shared supernatural universe which isn't uncommon in genre kelly armstrong did a similar thing with her women of the other world series and 
I guess, I don't know, maybe there was an assumption out there that because the main characters, the MCs, are all women in some regard, and most of them are all female monsters because that's what really interests me. Um, and there must have been some assumption that only women would read that. But, of course, like, men love reading those types of characters too. They love interesting women. Like, there's no way you're going to have Buffy survive and be such a cultural impact that it was for so long if it's only women and yes okay that show is very much like supported by and driven by a female fan base but men love that show just as much as women do Mm. and that's something that I found a lot in my readership it would probably be about 60% women 40% men roughly so that's almost an even split and it's been really fantastic because the things that people connect with might be a little bit different and um, the things that I, the themes and tones and stuff like that that I can introduce, like my, my little agenda that I can slip in there is great because I know it's going to hit um, a broad readership in, in terms of that regard. But it was particularly interesting for me with The Witcher Called a Death because the main character, Corviosa von Klitzing, uh, she's called Caspar because she's somebody who can communicate with and control the dead. Tommy Grayson, the main character from the first two books, who's afraid and who's afraid to, she's a female werewolf. So she's somebody who's physically strong. Um, she's someone who can decapitate you if she wants to, and she often does. She's someone who can embowel you, who can, you know, literally trade blows with the dude, you know, punch for punch. Yeah. Whereas Corviosa's abilities, her strengths, the things that make her special is a mental capacity, it's an intelligence, it's a quietness and a reserve and a thoughtfulness, and it's a cunning. You know, she doesn't have physical strength in the same regard, but she's a very, very powerful character and someone that's feared and quite notorious in the supernatural community because of what she can do with her mind. And that was really fun for me to be able to flex that muscle and to be able to explore and challenge a lot of those ideas that people have about strong female Mm. characters. And as you say, strength is not just physical strength. Totally. You've got female characters leading a book and they are just strong in their own self. Exactly. You can be like, you can have strength of will. You can be brave. You can be courageous. Those, those traits are strength as well. You know, Mm. it doesn't have to be, you can bench, you know, 50 kilos. That's actually a pretty small thing to bench, isn't it? I probably should have picked a larger number, but you know what I, what I'm saying is like strong female characters don't have to be ones that you give masculine traits like physical strength too. Although I do have those, but I would like to think that Tommy is someone that's really interesting to me because those books are first person perspective and every book I've written since is third person. And Tommy is someone who ha- has the abilities of a villain and she's also someone who has to examine a lot of her own prejudices and is coming from a very specific place at the start of the first book where everything's black and white to her. And as the story goes on, she starts to see these shades of grey about what it means to be... Um, not only a woman but a monster and which side of her is more dominant and how she examines that and and sort of like understanding a little bit more about where she comes from, who she comes from and, and why those people are the way they are. And what I think is interesting about your writing is that it's realistic in the sense of obviously, you know, you've got your werewolves mm. and your, your, the supernatural side. Yeah, of it. super relatable. Yeah, very, very <laughs> relatable. But there is a lot of that, that grey space because the world isn't right and wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that dimension song, The Fence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do the world of... is, as E.L. James would say, 50 Shades of Grey. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, deep sigh, deep sigh, d- just spilled d- tea over my knee at the same time. Yeah. We're doing this in a hotel room overlooking the industrial sort of part of Adelaide. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. car park. It's a lovely car park. <laughs> um, Put that on a postcard, Adelaide. What a car park. It's truth. <laughs> but um, 
Uh, I've, lost, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, that's my fault. I that's right. No, this is fun. This is what we don't get to do on stage. You don't get to have mad bands like this, you know? It's also usually like it's tricky on a stage because you've got three or four different mm. people and you've got an audience as well you've got to take questions from. You're trying to make sure everybody has an it's, – it's a tough job, guys. I'm seeing is a tough job. I think everyone has a tough job at, uh, at Supernova. I don't know. Being a guest on those panels, you kind of just sit there and wait for someone to ask you a question. So it's generally speaking pretty easy. Emceeing is a tough gear. You guys deserve a little bit more respect. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I was talking about the, the, the grey that, yes. you, that you write in. And I think that is it's fascinating because it is more realistic because you don't think of actions mm-hmm. as, as right and wrong, mm-hmm. but fiction for so long has defined this is a good character and this is a bad character yeah. and that's it. Yeah. What what was sort of the motivation to be more real in the, in the writing? Where did that sort of come from? Mm, that's a good question. I think maybe because those are the stories that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't want to keep bringing up Buffy, so I'm going to pick another example, but X-Men is a really mm. good example. Those stories, I mean, it was an allegory for race and homophobia originally. That's like how that started out. It was a really great examination of that as those stories have continued on. It's been very interesting because... Maybe with the exception of Apocalypse, you don't have very many clean-cut villains in the X-Men universe. It's somebody who's suffered a lot to end up where they are or there's circumstances that have led them to a certain way. And they do quite a good job of that in the movies, showing the dynamic between um, Magneto and Charles Xavier. And those stories always really interested me. I mean, Gambit's like one of my favourite characters of all time. I have a Gambit tattoo on my arm. Um, and he starts out as a villain, basically. He's, you know, it's like from a th- guild of thieves. And so I find that stuff really interesting. Those stories really complicated. And just that things don't have to be goodies and baddies. It's a very um, two-dimensional way to look at things. Mm. And there can be like a lot of nuance involved as well. Like Casper, for instance, in The Witcher Quarter Death. She kills people. Actually, Tommy kills people too. Tommy kills a lot of people. Tommy, Tommy's like down for. I think she's she doesn't quite um, necessarily struggle with it in the same way that mm. Casper does because Tommy's someone who actively goes after monsters, whereas Casper has a very specific vendetta and she knows what she needs to do to get there. But the, you know why she's doing that as a reader. You can understand her reasoning and her rationale. She's also somebody who um, has a very informed and specific perspective about life and death Mm -hmm. because she can communicate with and talk to the dead and she surrounds herself with the dead more than she does the living. And so her views of that world and what it takes to deliver somebody to it are a little bit more skewed than it would be if it was just like an everyday Joe or Jane. Very much so. And the book is set across numerous countries. Yes. Most of my books are actually, with the exception of It Came From The Deep, which is set because it's a very self-contained story, but that's set on the Gold Coast, only the Gold Coast. But yep. yeah. You, so you're spending countries. Mm. Are, you, are, you, are you traveling to research? Yeah, totally. Know? Yeah, totally. Well, um, Who's Afraid is set in New Zealand, which mm-hmm. is my home country, and Dundee in Scotland, which is like Scotland's third biggest city, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like, oh, man, what an honor. But it's a really interesting city. It's a very interesting place. And I lived there for a few months researching it and just trying to make sure that I got everything right and I was doing an authentic portrayal of the city and like going to the places that hypothetically speaking Tommy would go 
the second book, Who's Afraid 2, is set in a place called Wigtown. It starts off in Wigtown, which is Scotland's national book town. Very small town, 400 people in the country. Um, and then events move to Berlin. And most of the second book takes place in Berlin. And The Witch You Caught a Death starts in Berlin. We go to Latvia for a brief moment. <laughs> and I did that specifically because I saw, um, <laughs> it's so stupid, but I saw the stats for um, world readership and like, different countries that mm. readers come from and I have a readership in Latvia like a significant readership in Latvia and I was like what the fuck like that's crazy to me and I was like well this is for my Latvian peeps so I like wrote in they needed to go somewhere anyway so um I was like I'm writing in a scene in Latvia that's mm. set in a bingo hall with lynxes and it's a whole thing and then to Cornwall and Boss Castle which is again a very specific part of Cornwall it's a small town it's oh maybe maybe five six hundred people max Mm. like it's it's definitely a place you go to as a tourist and people live in and around the area but very few people live in boss castle and it's this weird little town sort of like constructed between the crag in two cliffs and there's like a river that like cuts in through the middle of it and it's a fascinating place but it's also the home of uh the museum of witchcraft and magic which is the largest collection of occult and witchcraft artifacts in the world. And it was a place that I went to and it's just... You went there? I went there. I know. Who would have thought? Uh, listeners, if you've ever seen what I look like physically, this will make a lot of sense to you. But it just made so much sense. Like it was just like the perfect place to set a story. And because it's so specific as well, like I like to take readers on a journey somewhere they haven't been before and especially when I was starting out it felt like a lot of urban fantasy was set in either New York LA London or a small town where everybody knew each other's names so it was like one of four options it gets really boring and Mm. stale after a while and then you'd start to discover the work of people like Carrie Arthur for instance who's an Australian genre writer New York Times bestseller USA Today bestseller but she sets her most of her stories in like a post-apocalyptic version of Melbourne, which is fascinating as a reader and like very, very interesting. And Patricia Briggs as well has um, has a very specific setting for her Mercy Thompson series and her Shapeshifter series. And it's those sort of books that I think when they're re- – and Charlene Harris, I should say, is also really good at that with the Sookie Stackhouse series um, and that being set, you know, in the South and the examination, examinations of racism and homophobia – those are the stories that there's just a little bit something extra. Yeah. Um, and I think from a journalist's point of view as well, I like to do my research properly, <laughs> as, as properly as I can. And for me to be able to set something somewhere, I really need to have been there. And without spoiling it, because it's a very new mm. book, there is a fairly, I hate using the word epic, but it is a very epic battle scene. Uh, towards the end. Yes, somebody painted that scene. Somebody painted that scene already? It's been out for I like know, I nearly had a days? seizure. No, they painted it on the second day it had been out. I'll show you. There was a woman on Twitter. Um, Carol is her mm-hmm. name. I think the account's called Reading and Riesling. <laughs> and she, it's in Chapter 19 and she painted it. Um, and it's supposed to be like a depiction of the, the battle scene between... Corviosa and these baddies called the Arachnia. Mm. And, I, and I want to... It's crazy. I mean, the Arachnia does give you a bit of a hint as to what they might look yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. you know Greek origins of words. That's yeah, well, <laughs> thanks for those nightmares. <laughs> yeah, um. you're welcome. I had so much fun creating them. They're a fun monster to build. Uh, I want to talk about the visualisation of mm. that because it is a hugely visual thing. Yes. And in my mind, that picture was painted very clearly, but mm-hmm. obviously 
those written words, not a movie. Yeah. You, you, you've, you've created everything that you've put in my yeah. head so that I'm not sleeping. Um, <laughs> talk, talk me through writing something that's so visual. Um, well, I'm a very visual person. I've always loved movies and comic books. They mm. were sort of kind of – and television. But they, those were sort of like my first sort of go-to pop culture. Always loved books. But, of course, as a kid you start out reading picture books. And I was always a big reader. But I was also very like – deep into comics as well so it was a combination of stories and a lot of times I would read books and sketch the characters and then eventually when I started my writing my own stories if I would get stuck or hit like a writing block I would sketch so I have all these notebooks of drawings and scenes that maybe I was struggling to write Mm. physically so I would manifest them visually and draw them or I would draw a character and what they were wearing and how they would look and that's how the person I would end up describing in the book, which isn't um, a super common process, but with the with the baddies, shall we say, from The Witch Who Caught a Death, is um, an artist called Gustav Dorr who did a lot of um, engravings of, like, biblical scenes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He was a very gothic artist. Like, his stuff is very specific, and it's the kind of thing where you look at and you're like, that's a nightmare. That is, like, and that's, like, a nightmare fodder. Sort of um, very different styles, but, like, sort of like Francis Bacon when you look at his work and you're like, wow, my God, I know exactly, like, nothing looks like his stuff. You know, it's so yeah. specific. It's, like raw meat slapped on a canvas but through paint and Gustav Dorr does a lot of um very creepy specific scenes that are like dark and I have um I have a few reference books at home and one of them is a Gustav Dorr book and I was looking through bits and pieces of that and because the villain isn't a lot of like um the monsters and things that I have in these books are well-known monsters shall we say like werewolves are pretty well-known monster generally speaking a merman from it came from the deep like it's supposed to be a twist on the little mermaid and creature from the black lagoon and ghosts and witches and the witch who caught a death but um there is a glossary in the back of the witch who caught a death which is awesome to me because that's like i was such a nerd and you know it was exciting to be able to earn a glossary after four books to be able to include one since it's all the same universe i know that's it i like i've made it from a nerd perspective but um Arachnia, in terms of a creature, is something that was very open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like a half made up creature, half, you know, cemented in real life. And so that was kind of a lot of fun because it gave me a lot of creative license. And it's not, um, again, like no spoilers. So it's not a traditional definition no. of what that creature could be. Um, it's a little bit messed up. And so I was watching The Thing, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of course, the John Carpenter, The Thing, um, not the original. And yeah, just watching a lot of stuff like that and taking inspirations and, and putting it in there. And I hope that it's scary because I've had a lot of feedback from people about that particular um, monster and it's been like that was gross and disgusting and terrifying and I was like good that means I'm doing my job you are certainly doing it uh-huh. now you mentioned your love of, of pop culture yeah you have filled this book with some of the most beautifully obscure <laughs> pop culture references in in the world yeah I, I don't often read sentences like brokers nick cage <laughs> like and that's a narration scene too that's not even dialogue yeah I thought my editor was going to make me take that out but they left it in so sweet Talk me through where where these come from. Are these all just your knowledge or are you writing things for fans? Or no, it's for fun? a lot of it's how I speak. Um, a lot of it's also like what are my interests. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, because that's the world that I dive into and uh, I interviewed Nick Cage a few times. He's a very interesting man. has nothing to do with the line, but he, everyone knows that he's, like, quite famously broke at the moment and has been to sell his T-Rex fossils and his action comics number one and all that kind of thing. It was just, I don't know, I just put it in there and it kind of, like, amu- a lot of the stuff I'll put in there and it amuses me. Yep. And um, I just leave it in there because it makes me chuckle. And if you're editing things like a thousand times, like you get to that uh, to a certain line that amuses you, and I'm like, hee hee. Um, and sometimes they'll take it out, or sometimes it might be like um, a reference that's too specific, or uh, depending on like what stage of the editing that you're at, or if they bring in like a freelance editor sometimes outside of my publishers in London mm-hmm. um, who mightn't be as pop culture savvy and there'll be like a lot of questions like, what does this mean? I use the word fang it in one of the books. I can't remember which one it was. But, um, of course, fang it being a very like Australian colloquial term for like fast, like going fast. You're like, oh, we've got to make it to the shops before five. Quick, you better fang it. Um, and I had it in there I think it's Who's Afraid 2, actually, maybe. Um, I had, like, a question mark from my editor, and I explained it to her. And in the context, it made sense. But, yeah, a lot of times it will just be things that are either funny and amusing to me, but it's also, like, who's the character? Casper's somebody who um, isn't, like, super-versed on modern pop culture. Mm. She's not somebody like Tommy Grayson, for instance, is your girl who's consuming comic books and a lot of art she's a art curator that's she's a very visual person and everything about her and her friendship group especially is um her like her best friends a journalist and who works on like the crime beat and stuff like that and um her like all her friendship group are very like pop culture cemented as you are i think in your early 20s casper is a character who's a little bit older you know she's in yeah. her 30s and her experiences in life are different. She doesn't really care about pop culture in that regard. So a lot of the references she makes are a little bit older and a little bit dated. There's like a point where um, she's asked about a movie, like what movie are you watching or something? She says Suspiria. And of course that was, I'm meaning the original Suspiria, not the remake. I freaking love the remake for the record, but this book was written, written quite a while before that was coming out. But like a obscure foreign language expressionist horror film from 1975 is like totally Casper's jam. Um, whereas it wouldn't be Tommy's and it's about working out what are the bits of pop culture that are specific to that character. And that can be used to tell the reader something about them. One of the, the witch from the title. So it's called the witch, a quarter death. Casper is death. The witch is a character called Opal. She talks about, um, um, I was about to say Nick Cave again. No, Nick Cave. Nick Cave yes. Yeah. So good. I always get like this name is similar. And they're both kooky. Um, <laughs> but she's talking about Nick Cave and how, um, you know, which she's using it as a joke, like how all witches mm. like love Nick Cave, and they were talking about his like you know repertoire of music. But she's an Australian witch, and so a lot of her pop culture references are Australian centric. Mm. And yeah, it's it's about trying to use those things in some way, and of course. Casper is from Berlin and Suspiria is set in Berlin. So it's, yeah, it's like trying to, what would naturally be those things that that person would have interacted with? Of course. And you've mentioned a few times that you've already had feedback about the book. (laughs) Now, I mean, obviously there were certain advanced copies, which is how I've read it. Yes. How how many people have read it in the five or so days that it's been out? Dude, it's bananas. It's bananas. Um... I got the sales figures back, early preliminary sales figures back from my Australian publisher, and I, I couldn't believe it, honestly. Mm. Like I think, 
Who's Afraid made an impact, but it was definitely like a grower, not a shower, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like it, it was like it was something that there's a, a big Who, Who's Afraid fan base now, but it was it took like a solid few years of hustling, building up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course, like that makes sense. That's your debut. Like unless you know you're one of those authors who just has a massive hit on their first go, um, and Who's Afraid is a bestseller, and that's great. And, but it took a while, you know, for it to mm. get there. And it was – the audience was cultivated over a period of time and I had to hustle really hard for it. And so I wasn't ever expecting an immediate success. And I'm also someone who's used to having to work really hard for their shit. Um, not that I didn't work really hard for The Witcher Called a Death, but I didn't expect for there to be such an immediate audience for it. And first of all, for so many people to have read it – within a day or two days because depending on what bookshop you go to and if you have a pre-order sometimes people get it like a day or two before the release or something like that but um I was in the air flying so I left like the US on October 30 lost Halloween my favorite day of the year tragically but that's when the book came out so I lost that day in transit and landed on the 1st of November to all these bookstagram posts which is like on instagram they use hashtag bookstagram it's where people lay out the books and they'll put thematic stuff around it it's beautiful like i honestly like it's one of my favorite things in the world people tag you in that stuff every day and it's so nice and i have no idea why people do it i'm like oh my god they're like it's so nice that somebody would assemble your book nicely and take a picture and you get nothing from like they get nothing from that it's just like the satisfaction of being like here's a pretty cover and i liked this book and therefore i assembled some stuff there's this guy called jace who um He's big in the bookstagram community and he did like a, a picture of the book with like surrounded by tarot cards. Oh, that's cool. Which was amazing. It looked so good. It looked like The Love Witch, which is like a kind of cult movie from 2016 by Annabella, which was like very like Hammer House horror-y. And there's also some a lot of references to tarot, particularly the number nine throughout the book. Um, and I was just like, oh my Lord, like that is so cool. Like you could work for a publisher doing that. So yeah, I was I've been pretty flabbergasted um, by how many people have read it so quickly, and how many people have shared thoughts so quickly. Goodreads is a place where um, people share reviews mm-hmm. and things like that, and they track stuff. And I stay very far away from that because, well, first of all, it's a platform for readers, not for writers. Mm-hmm. And you see so many people get in trouble, getting to fights with people over reviews, and people like you know attacking authors or authors attacking bloggers, and it's just like a messy situation like just remove yourself from the situation altogether and also again for them not for us it's where I I go into Goodreads as a reader I'll share reviews of things that I liked and things that I don't like I don't tend to review because who needs the negativity but um, I sit very very far away from Goodreads (laughs) for that exact reason Um, and just mentally I'm not somebody who handles reviews very well positive or negative like I just positive ones kind of like glance off me I'm like that's nice and they're like one negative comment I'll be thinking about it and festering over it for weeks so just like from a mental health perspective I'm like yeah okay that's not a thing for you but just from Twitter from Facebook um from Instagram the amount of people I've been sending stuff through has been yeah really really crazy good really crazy amazing and really exciting for me because I think the Witch You Quoted Death is the book I'm most proud of, yep. proudest of. I worked super, I worked super hard on all my books, but it's a character that's very different from everything that I've done before. The world building is a lot bigger and expansive, and it's just a different type of storytelling to what I've done before. I really pushed myself and tried to flex. 
Um, and the fact that people seem to be responding to it is great. But, you know, we're saying this week one. We are. Could be a month and people are like, burn it to the ground. <laughs> so, oh, God, I hope I didn't predict. I touch wood. But, yeah, you just you just don't know. Art's yeah. subjective. It's a tricky thing. But people seem to be really liking it and that's that's wonderful. That's it really wonderful. is. And it is it's very good. I very much enjoyed reading it. And we'd like we'd like our listeners to buy it, wouldn't we, Maria? <laughs> where, where can people buy the book? Um, anywhere you would usually buy books from. So if that's online, if that's Amazon and Booktopia or Book Depository or whatever, that's where you can grab it. But you can also get it from local bookshops. If they don't have it in, if you ask them to order it in, most bookshops will do that for you unless they're real arseholes. Most of them aren't because book lovers tend, tend to be good people. But also, if you can't afford to buy a book, books are expensive. Um, you can borrow it from the library. And a lot of people don't know this, but there's this thing in Australia called the Public Lending Rights Act, PLR. And so every time somebody borrows a book of yours from a library, you get a few cents. It gets collated and, uh, like, say, every six months, year, year and a half, you get sent a check from the government, which can be really wonderful. And if libraries order a new book as well, you get a few extra cents. So that's pretty awesome as well. So if you can't afford to physically buy the book, please don't sweat it. You can get it from the library for free. And we get like 10 cents. That PLR check, man, that paid my car rego this year. So it's nothing to sneeze at. Certainly not. And uh, for listeners who want to find you on social media, where, where you are funny. Uh, <laughs> am I? Well. It depends how tired and yeah, angry I am. Angry or funny or yeah maybe, it also depends cry. what people send me to be honest <laughs> um <laughs> on instagram i'm maria lewis so it's just my name m-a-r-i-a three underscores and lewis l-e-w-i-s but if you just search it you'll find it facebook i'm maria lewis writer um i have a youtube channel where i most uh, mostly it's for movie reviews and a few like behind the scenes videos of tours and stuff like that but i'm a massive movie nerd so do a lot of like curated movie marathons under a certain theme. That's where you can find that. And on Twitter, um, Maria Lewis, if you search me, I'll come up. I have a, like the little blue tick thingy, but the actual username itself is movie Maz with two Zs. Well, Maria, it's been lovely having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for asking like such great specific questions. I haven't had a chance to do an interview specifically about the book yet, so it was really wonderful. Well, thank you for sending it to me so I could read it. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks to the publisher, really. <laughs> That's their job. I yeah. wasn't even in the country, but... No. Yeah, I'm glad you got it. That's, yeah. that's important. You got that glossary. Got that I got the glossary. glossary. It would have been a really awkward interview otherwise. <laughs> your book exists. There's actually, if have you stopped the interview? No, yeah. no, okay, really, cool. Really. I'm going to just keep chatting for yeah. 10 seconds. But if you read the glossary and you have read any of the previous books, mm-hmm. definitely read that glossary closely because there's a few little Easter eggs in there. Oh, we love Easter eggs. Easter eggs, guys. It's my post credit scene. I think people, if they find, if they listen to this podcast and they find the Easter eggs, yes, they should have some sort of code word to, to like tweet or Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Um, banana pudding. <laughs> Could tweet banana pudding at me, and I'll know. I'll know what it's about. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not going to confuse that for anything. Nope, no nah, banana pudding's pretty safe, pretty neutral. Yeah. Very few sexual innuendos you can add to banana pudding just quietly, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maria, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. That was my chat with the lovely Maria Lewis. Now, as I said, there is a link in the show notes for where you can buy her book, The Witch Who Caught a Death. 
So uh, check that out as soon as you can. And um, you can follow Maria on social media too. She's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And as always, you can find me on those social media sites too. On Instagram, it's Benjamin May McKay. On Twitter, it's at BenjaminMM underscore. And on Facebook, Benjamin May McKay. And look for the verified check mark. As always, thanks to our incredible supporters, Mad Zombie Collectibles, ZQ Racing, and Palace Nova Cinemas. Always look out for my movie reviews in the movie reviews section of the website. And... Don't forget, the final installment of The Phoenix Files is out on November 30th. That is The Phoenix Files' Life in the Flames. It concludes the trilogy starring BAFTA nominee Paul McGann, Andrew Hansen, Kurt Phelan, Stephen Mahi, and a whole lot of other actors. It's a cast of over 40. So I hope you, uh, hope you check that out. And if you haven't heard the first two installments yet, they are all available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and phoenixfilesaudio.com. And very excitingly, the soundtrack album for The Phoenix Files is also available on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play, and phoenixfilesaudio.com. And just look for that under The Phoenix Files Audio Dramas Music from the Series. Well, this is the uh, final episode for November, so I hope you've enjoyed our content this month. We'll be back with one more episode in December for the year and for Season 5, and with a whole lot more content next year. So, it has been my absolute pleasure having you with us today. See you next time. <laughs>